Well, again, good morning. My name is Jameson. This morning, we pick up our four-week series looking at marks of the healthy church. And the first week, about two weeks ago, it's hard to believe it's been two weeks. The first week, in Colossians chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is the true leader of her church. And then last week in 1 John chapter 4, we saw that the true church is meant to love one another. And this morning, we turn to the passage that Matt read for us in Isaiah chapter 6, and we see that the church is meant to live on mission. So if you have your Bibles open already, great. If you don't, this is the time to please do so. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 1 to 8. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us one more time and ask God to teach us only what he would want us to see in his word. Father, we thank you that every time we open your word, we are hearing from you. We have not come to hear from a preacher. We have come to hear from a living God. You are our king. You are holy, holy, and holy, and your words befit your character. And so, Lord, regardless of what we have brought into this room, suffering, shame, guilt, distractions, Lord, set our eyes now upon the one who is high and lifted up. Set our eyes on you and open our ears so that our souls may live as we consider your word. And Lord, I do pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Guard my mouth that I would only say what would make most of Jesus and let everything else fall to the floor. Lord, we ask that you would do this for your glory. Amen. I have a confession to make. That'll get the heads up. <laughs> Ultimate sermon hook. I have a confession to make. No, no, no. It's not, well, hear me out. I, like 8% of the male population, I have a vision problem. I don't see correctly. I'm partially colorblind. So don't take this as your invitation to test me after church. What color is this? What color is that? Oh my gosh, my pastor doesn't know what color I'm wearing. I'm partially colorblind. I get similar colors mixed up when next to each other. Purple, blue, orange, yellow. No clue. My wife has ultimate veto say over any outfit I'd put on. (laughs) David can put whatever he wants on the slides behind me because I have no creative ability, nor can I see rightly. See, some of us have this partial vision problem, but all of us have a deeper vision problem of the heart. See, Isaiah 6 is going to point us to a great commission that happens for one of Isaiah, or Israel's most well-known prophets, Isaiah. But before we get to the commission, we have the correction of a spiritual vision problem, the correction of the same spiritual problem that you and I have. We're blinded by our pride. See, the background of Isaiah is this. Isaiah was a man of nobility, esteem, worth, prestige, someone in all of society looked to. And then he became a prophet. And then he started to face loneliness, persecution, imprisonment. His life likely ended in martyrdom, and he did it all so that he could tell about the goodness, the holiness, the worth of God. What motivated him? What motivates us when it's difficult to live on mission, when it's difficult to tell others about who Jesus is and what he's done? What motivates us when it's hard? correct spiritual vision. We need to see the king if we're ever going to speak about him. That's who Isaiah saw in verse 5. Listen to what he says in verse 5. I have seen the king. I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. 
his vision problem was corrected as he looked vertically, not horizontally. See, the big idea for our time together is that the church should live on mission. We exist to pursue the physical, but most importantly, the spiritual well-being of those around us as we verbally proclaim and invite a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is made to live on mission. We are made to pursue the physical and most importantly, the spiritual good of our neighbors as we verbally proclaim and invite a response to the invitation that Jesus makes in his gospel. And as I say, we should live on mission. The temptation is, let me give them a thousand and one how-tos. As if that's what we need. As if what we need is another strategy to add to our playbook. Sure, eventually, we will help equip you for missional living. But today is about the why, not the how. You know why? Because affection precedes application. Your heart must be won over before you're going to do anything. You must see this king as holy before you speak of him as worthy. Affection precedes application. And so what do we need to see? What do the eyes of our hearts need to see? Well, they need to see three, th- three things clearly, which we see in Isaiah chapter 6. We need to see God rightly. We need to see ourselves rightly. And then we need to see the need for worship. We need to see God, ourselves, and the need for worship. All in Isaiah 6. And we're going to first look at, we need to see God rightly. Verse 1 to 4. Turn with me. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Two weeks ago, many of us voted in what pundits called the most important election of our generation, the midterm election. And forgive me for not getting too worked up before it, but I think I have heard that title given to elections prior to this one as well. Most important of our generation. You know what? I bet that had been echoed to some degree, shape, or form all the way back 2,700 years ago to when King Uzziah ruled over Judah. See, us in all of society often look to offices and elected officials for sovereign rulership, for ultimate power, the kingdom that won't crumble. But those kingdoms crumble. Those officials come and go. Like you and I, they will die someday. And it's exactly at the point of an earthly kingdom crumbling that we need to see the true heavenly king on his eternal kingdom and his throne. That's who Isaiah saw. Listen to verse 1 again. And the year King Uzziah died, there's death here. Death of a king. Uzziah was a pretty good guy by king's standards. He did a lot of successful things. He became king at a young age, as a teenager. He reigned for 52 years. And minus the downfall of pride at the end of his life, he was well-liked. Can you imagine having a president in our country with near 90% approval rating who wasn't in office for just one term, but 13 consecutive terms? What would the fallout be after he died? Grieving? Mourning? Fears over the future? It's exactly at this time 
that our eyes need to see the heavenly king and turn away from focus on the earthly king. Listen to what Isaiah saw. Verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The focus from the dead earthly king shifts to the living eternal king. Isaiah saw the Lord, the transcendent one, the sovereign one, the capital K king. He was high and lifted up, even as the earthly kingdoms crumbled and fell. And above him, look what Isaiah saw. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and two, he flew. Seraphim, these angelic creatures, bright in appearance, but resolute in purpose, existing to do their master's bidding, whatever he asks of them. And did you notice two-thirds of their wings are used to demonstrate their unworthiness, their humility, two covering their feet, two covering their face? We're not worthy. We're seraphim, but you're God. And then with his other, their other two wings, they're flying. Constant activity, going wherever God sends them to do whatever he commands them. And all the while, the most beautiful of sound is ringing out from their voices. Verse 3, the sound of eternity, the sound of the heavenly course. One called to another and said, just stop right there, this isn't a concert. One calling to another. This is the response to God's divine presence, his holy appearance. They're not singing for the applause or the affirmation of others. They're singing because they must. They see a holy God. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness. There are many attributes of God spoken about in Scripture, but none is more often noted than holiness. Other, set apart, perfect in moral majesty, totally unlike us, worlds apart, if worlds could even begin to comprehend what this word means. Now, I was trying to imagine, okay, how do I I depict this difference? God's holiness, our unholiness? And I thought about... 17th Street Barbecue. <laughs> Anyone ever eaten at 17th Street Barbecue? Anyone else ever eaten at Polar Whip? <laughs> I know, to each their own, this isn't the time nor the place, but it kind of is. 17th Street Barbecue. Fresh, well-seasoned, actual meat. <laughs> Polar Whip. Wow. I am truly in a foreign land among foreign people. Oh. 17th Street. Fresh, real meats, well-seasoned. Polar Whip. Frozen. Imitation meat-like substance. Who cares about seasonings? The divide. The divide between these cuisines is incomprehensible. We are talking about worlds apart. Worlds apart. Totally different categories. And yet, let's pull it back together here. My fault. Totally my fault. 
Next week's sermon illustrations will go through a vetting board. Let's pull it back. There's a great divide between the culinary cuisine which we just talked about. Much, much, much more so is the divide between our character and God's character. God is holy to the third degree. Like putting an exponent on it. If I even knew what an exponent was, I'd explain it. Holy to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. A super superlative in Hebrew terms. And yet this super superlative barely begins to convey the reality of how different, set apart, perfect, sinless, and moral majesty is compared to us. See, I could say I love my wife 50 times, and it barely begins to plumb the depths of what that word means, isn't it? Our God is holy, holy, holy. Have you let that sit in? We haven't come to just commune with someone else like us. We haven't come to sing the praises of someone like us. We have come to sing the praises of the one who is high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. And the one who has power beyond all limits, as Isaiah experienced in verse 4. Look at our powerful God in verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. My goodness. Can you imagine? Isaiah is there to worship, and there's an earthquake. There's smoke beyond what he can see. He's being shielded from the direct presence of God's holiness because no one can stand in the light of that. See, we see in part now, but we will see fully when he returns. We can't see fully right now because God is perfectly holy and we deserve to be cast away from him. But Isaiah saw in part. He heard fully the angelic singing. It was this picture of impending judgment. What will happen when Christ returns? And the foundation shook. The room was filled with smoke. The angels were praising because they must. Guys, worship isn't boring. Worship is never boring. Worship is never about you. It's not about me. It's not about us walking in and assessing some sort of standard to the band behind us or the preacher in front of us. It's not about us. It is about the holy, holy, holy Lord who is high and lifted up. We have come to praise the one who will never die, the one whose kingdom has no end, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Worship is not boring. God, forgive us for ever thinking that worship is about our preferences or the slides or the songs. It's about you. We are in your house. We are your people bought by your blood. You are holy, God. Give us the reverential fear that we need to approach you. See, worship is meant to be this knee-bowing, reverential fear-inducing experience with the one who makes all creation quake. Is this the God you see? Is this the God you see? I ask this question not rhetorically, but practically. Here's why. What you think about God will determine what you say about him. The God you see is the God you will speak about. You must, you must, you must see God as holy if you will ever speak about him as worthy. If he's merely a friend... Merely a casual acquaintance, or at best a personal genie, well then, on your best of days, he might come up as the fifth topic of conversation at your Starbucks date. He might. 
That is not the God we've come to worship. The God we have come to worship is the King, the Lord, the one whose presence filled the temple and fills all of creation, the one whose glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is the God we must see if we're ever going to live on mission. Is this the God you see? Is this the God you see? And only when we see him rightly will we then also see ourselves rightly. Let's look next at verse 5 to 7. Because for our spiritual blindness to be corrected, we must have our eyes open to who God really is. And we must see ourselves for who we really are. Verse 5 to 7. Isaiah responding to what he has seen. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. There's a lot happening as Isaiah looks vertically into the mirror of true holiness. And there's a very articulate theologian put this into words much better than I can, so I'm going to read his and give credit where credit's due. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then then descends from contemplating him, God, to scrutinize himself, man. For we always seem to ourselves righteous, Upright, wise, holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless, by clear proofs, we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. That's who Isaiah saw. That's where he looked. And that's what made him talk in verse 5. See, the only thing shaking more than the temple in verse 4 is Isaiah's conviction, his soul in verse 5. The only thing that shook more than that temple in verse 4 is Isaiah's heart in verse 5. Listen to what he says in response to God's holiness. He says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What do you think the first word you'll say in the presence of God will be? Woe. W-O-E. Not wow. Not awesome. Not cool. Not hashtag that. It's woe. W-O-E. It's a sentence of divine judgment that prophets were known for pronouncing on the sin around them, the egregious, the obvious sin around them. How shocking that the prophet pronounces it upon himself. I am unworthy. I am lost, he says. Undone. I am wrecked in my guilt. Unraveled. Why? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. Whoa, 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 Isaiah. Let me get this straight. You're undone? You're wrecked in guilt because of some loose lips? Because you said something you wish you wouldn't have said, well, join the club. It's not that bad, right? That's not the point. The point is the holy, perfect God. There is no small sin. There is only a perfect and holy God against whom we do sin. See, Isaiah isn't looking horizontally. He's looking vertically to see himself rightly. 
I'm colorblind. I get colors mixed up. There's blue, I see purple. We're naturally spiritually blind. In our pride, we look at our sin, and we see not that bad. We read the newspaper, we watch the news, we scroll the headlines, we see the guy who murdered and the guy who robbed the bank, and we look comfortably in the mirror and we say, not that bad. I hope God grades on a curve, because if he does, this guy's well within the means. That's not how holiness works. That's not how God's justice works. There is no small sin. There is only a perfect God against whom we have sinned. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah knows any degree of sinful speech only points to and reveals a heart full of sinful filth. The woe is just. The woe on Isaiah is just. The woe on me is just. See, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're meant to see our sin rightly and if we're ever going to receive grace fully. See, as I was preparing and praying over this text this week, of course the Lord would lead me to see my sin clearly in order to see his holiness more perfectly. I have struggled so much lately with patience, as if my, you know, my speech cadence didn't already tip you off to that. But I struggle with patience, and this week in particular, I struggle to be patient toward my two-year-old son, Josiah. I love him. I adore him. I am head over heels for him. And yet, I struggle to be patient when my comfort was sacrificed. See, in the midst of having my comfort sacrificed, I was willing to pursue my glory and intention and desires instead of what God might have had for he and I in that moment, no matter how uncomfortable or difficult. In my impatience, I revealed a love for self more than a compassion for others. Do you hear how ugly that is? Do you hear how deserving of wrath and just judgment from a holy, perfectly patient God that is how unlike him I am? See, Genesis 3 tells us that we have inherited this sinful disposition. Ever since the fruit was eaten, we now have natures and choices that would prefer sin over God. We try to be like God instead of trust him. And that comes with an eternal condemnation, a price tag that sin deserves. See, Romans 3 tells us this patience problem isn't just mine. This speech problem isn't just Isaiah's. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This passage is meant for us to see ourselves in light of it, only as we look to God who is over us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and unfortunately, Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. What we deserve in our sin is to be cast off, separated from a holy God, because in our unholiness, we can't be near him. We need forgiveness. We need atonement. We need new spiritual help, a divine physician to come cure us from the infectious cancer that would otherwise overrun our bodies and hearts and souls for all eternity. Two weeks, well, actually, no, not two weeks, less than a week before I got married, my wife was admitted to Frederick Memorial Hospital in need of emergency and, of course, unexpected surgery. No one puts that on the calendar on wedding week. She needed surgery to remove a very dangerous and likely fatal infection that was under, found under her arm. A totally surprise to us. Un, almost unheard of. Super rare. And she needed this surgery in part because if she wouldn't have gotten it, she likely would have died if undiagnosed. And this, of course, was 
devastating to her. She had a different intent for that week. And it was also terrifying because she knew her groom would have been quick to say, don't worry, honey. I got the decorations and flowers down. I got an eye for that. (laughs) She knew I couldn't be trusted in those last few days of the ceremony prep. She was worried. She was worried for the ceremony. I was worried for her life. She needed a doctor to come to her, to cure her, to rid her of that cancer. She would have been on her deathbed if not met in the state of her great need. You and I, Unless met by God's grace, we are on eternal deathbeds of sin. We would be eternally cast off from him unless the divine physician leaves his transcendent throne, flies to us with a divine instrument to do something we can't earn, nor do we deserve, to give us forgiveness and new life. Look what happens in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me. You know how absurd that is? The high, transcendent, holy God descends to be with sinners, moves to them before they ask. If grace ever demanded a capital G, this is it. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, divine messenger with a divine instrument from the divine altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The seraphim flew to Isaiah before he asked. God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace comes before we earn it, before we ask for it, before we deserve it. See, Romans 6 does say the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of life, the free gift for all who would receive it. The gift that God comes to us in our sin is new life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God does require a sinless life of us, holy, law-fulfilling. We failed. Each and every one of us, we failed. We have fallen short, missed the mark. God requires that a perfect, divine, holy penalty be paid for every single sin. We can't offer that. We're not holy. We can't pay for that in our blood. We need someone to come atone for us, to be our atonement. What the word here in Isaiah, atonement, the price, that, the, the, price the penalty that our sin necessitates be paid in order for us to be reconciled to God. And it was painful. For Isaiah, it was really painful, wasn't it? Those coals from the altar where sacrifices were made, they touched his lips. The man of unclean lips is given new clean lips from those coals. But the coals point to the cross. See, this happens 700 years before Jesus shows up, and yet the seraphim with the coals, that's like the 90-second preview, the trailer, to the full feature film that is Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection for sinners to forgive them and heal them completely, not just their lips, their hearts and their souls and their minds. See, those seraphim, they flew to seek out and save lost Isaiah. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save us, the lost. The divine physician leaves the high and heavenly throne and condescends, becomes imminent amongst us in order to save us, to deal with the penalty that we deserve in our sin. And you know what price he was willing to pay for it? 
a very painful one. See, it wasn't his lips that were cauterized. It was his body that was bled. Isaiah's lips were burned momentarily. Jesus bled completely, suffered sacrificially. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore his sins, our sins, in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His hands, his feet were nailed. That crown was put upon his head. He bled. He suffocated. He died. And that means that each and every one of us who believe in his work for us, the atonement he offers us, when we trust that his perfect life was lived in our place, when we trust that his sacrificial death upon the cross was died to pay our penalty, we are forgiven. We are given the not guilty sentence that Isaiah walks away with as he previews and foreshadows what Jesus would do. And it gets better. When we believe in the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as the inheritance, the sealing that gives us hope for the future, well, we're given a new life. We're given a new spirit, God's very presence in us. See, the moment that that stone rolled back from the tomb and Jesus walked out, the door to eternal life swung wide open. The moment that stone rolled back, the door to new life and a spirit-filled life for us became wide open. See, Jesus did live and die for us, and then he rose for us too. Death couldn't hold him. Sin, Satan, and death, the greatest enemies that could ever separate us from God, are done. They are done at the cross, at the tomb. We have reason to praise. We have reason to acknowledge our sin before him because he is faithful and just to forgive us. He is the one who can forgive us. He holds the keys over sin, Satan, and death. That means he's with us as we seek to put sin to death because it's already been conquered. We seek to put sin to death and live as holy people because we have been made holy by the holy God through faith in his work. We know that he is with us in our suffering because he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much more along with him will he also give us all things, including his spirit that lives in us, reminding us of his presence with us, reminding us he is the God of all comfort and father of all mercies. There's hope for us today, not just for Sunday, November, whatever it is, but for tomorrow and eternity because his spirit is alive in us, because he left that tomb after three days. Our holy God is alive. And us, as sinful, grace-needing people, you know what we do in response? We acknowledge our sin, and we receive his forgiveness. So the first question is, have you seen your sin rightly? Have you seen your sin rightly? Seriously, have you put down that carnival mirror of pride and self-righteousness? Have you stopped looking horizontally to the newspaper and the ticker on the news for making yourself feel better? We we don't have any place for pet sins. We don't have any place for unconfessed sins. We have a God who died to cleanse us of the penalty our sin deserves. We must receive his grace, and it comes through faith. The work of God to save us is his work, and yet we receive it through faith in his work. Have you given God your sin? 
Have you received his forgiveness? Have you gone from being familiar with and talking about God to knowing him, depending on him as the one who needed his grace to be forgiven? That's the question the gospel invites. See, Jesus will return, and one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and they will acknowledge he is Lord, one unto judgment, one unto eternal salvation. And 2 Corinthians tells us that godly grief is meant to produce repentance that leads to salvation. Let your sin taste bitter so his grace would taste sweet. Don't pretend. Don't hide. Don't minimize. Look upward. See your holy God. And then see his incredible humility, his grace to forgive and adopt us. Those who would be opposed to him. Is this who you see? Do you see yourself in need of grace? We must see ourselves in need of grace if we're ever going to speak about the one who gives grace. And that brings us to our concluding point in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. We must see God rightly, we must see ourselves rightly, and we must see the need for worship. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. What's happening here? Well, there's a conversation happening. Isaiah is not necessarily a part of it, but he's in earshot of it. Our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, speaking to one another, who will go for us? Who will say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Who will say there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved? Who will go for us? It's almost rhetorical for one who's in the earshot of it, for one who has just been cleansed completely. Isaiah can't help but go. His response is the only one that fits. Here I am. Send me. Rid me of any comfort I might have in this life in order that I be used for your purposes. Here I am, offering my life as a blank check. Wherever, to whomever you want me to go, send me. Not just to be sent, but to proclaim your name. To see worship magnified, multiplied. See, the end of our goal... The end of missional living is not missions in and of itself, as if we need another to do. The end of the end or goal is worship. Listen to this. Again, a much more renowned and articulate pastor than myself. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is an ultimate goal. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. If we see the glory of God, if we see our unholiness and our sin and the grace of God to forgive us, worship is all that we can do. Worship is all that we exist to do. That's what our entire lives are for. And we can't help but speak about him who is holy once we've seen him as completely worthy. And that's what Isaiah did. With the rest of his life, he lived on mission because he saw God as holy. This is the same commission that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. The ones who he drew from very mediocre, at best, backgrounds, told them all they needed to know, gave them the forgiveness they needed. And then he says before he ascends to heaven, go therefore, go, go, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. The holy God came to Isaiah to forgive him. The holy God comes to us in Jesus to forgive us, to make us worshipers. The holy God sends us out to proclaim worship to him, to see the worship of his name expand across all peoples and all nations. We have come and seen. Now we must go and tell. We must go and tell if we have received his grace. And we must see these things rightly because hearts that don't see are mouths that won't speak. And so my question is, have you seen this God? Have you seen him as holy? Have you seen your sin? Have you seen your sin as forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus? And then have you seen this need for worship? Not just activity, but heart-level worship, where we are free from the bondage of things of this world like money, comfort, power. Those are gods, little g gods. Those are gods that would seek to enslave us. Do we see a need for worship to the true capital G God to override even these small little gods in our lives? See, this isn't just for the pagan. This is for me. This is for you to worship the living God. Do you see the need? Well, then let us go. Let us live on mission, pursuing the physical and especially spiritual well-being of our neighbors as we talk about this King Jesus, high and lifted up, near to us to forgive. And the way we're going to respond this morning is I kindly voluntold Mitchell before the service to play a song to give us an opportunity to respond. And he graciously, thank you, responded in order to give us some time to speak with the Lord. I don't want us to rush out of here with a dismissal. I want us to talk to the God who is high and lifted up right now. So I'm going to give you some time to pray. Speak with him. Let all other distractions fall to the floor. I'm going to be up front if you want to pray with someone, or you can pray with the person next to you. But Mitchell is going to lead us, and then after a few moments, I'll get back up. Um, when the song concludes and give you a benediction and a more official dismissal. Let's pray together.